0: This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world, and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome.
1: Hey, hey, everyone. So glad you have found us. This is Linda Sievertson, and today, Danielle Laporte and I are speaking with Mary Carr, poet, professor of literature at Syracuse University, and the author of three best-selling memoirs, Liars Club, Cherry, and Lit. Mary has just released The Art of Memoir, which I know many of you have read because of how many requests Danielle and I have received to interview Mary. We are elated that you agreed. Mary, welcome. Welcome.
2: Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. So we always start with a blessing or a prayer declaration. And for everybody listening, no matter where you are, it's actually really good to breathe. So take a deep breath. And here we are. We're here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding here and now. And by brilliance, we mean light. Hmm. All right, Linda, take it away.
1: So, Mary, you have been teaching memoir for 30 years, and now you've written what Cheryl Strayed calls the definitive book on reading and writing memoir. So any regrets? Ever wish you'd spent all that time, say, on fiction or becoming a belly
3: dancer or something? Well, if I'd been a better pole dancer, I know I could have made more money. (laughs) Or (laughs) drug (laughs) mule, or or probably, yeah. No, I mean, I'm one of those people who really, I can't do anything else. I'm a poor thing. I have to sit around my house in my pajamas. That's as good as I can do.
1: Now, I read that you said that it took you seven years to write and that you literally would have made more money working in McDonald's.
3: <laughs> Is that no, true? No, a, a deep pat prior would have generated more income, yes. Um, no, I threw away 1,200 finished pages. I mean, I threw away the equivalent of four finished books before I turned in the final manuscript of that book. So it was very agonizing for me. But I don't know. I mean, what can I say? At one point, I considered... Selling my apartment and giving all the money back. I mean, I I despaired of ever finishing it. But none of my books has been particularly easy to write. Yeah. Well, Mary, did you actually nuke it, destroy
2: it, tear up the files, or did you just like just tuck them aside and they're in a vault somewhere? Oh no, I threw
3: them capital A away. They went to the. Okay, but that's
1: crazy, ass Mary. Who does
3: that? Well, I knew how crummy they were, or else I would have (laughs) saved them. (laughs) <laughs> they were terrible. They were bad. Trust me. I mean, somebody says, how do you know? I'm like, I know. I know for a living. I've been teaching for 30 years. I know what bad writing looks like. And all of this generated, everybody generates uh, really tedious work. I mean, yeah. it's just how it is. Yeah. Just part of the process.
1: Most of us just aren't honest enough with ourselves to say that it's crap and throw it away. We tuck it away and then try to mine it later for tasty tidbits.
3: Well, I had a wonderful moment. I mean, when I was at my nader, when I had finally thrown away it was my third sort of pass and I had thrown away, you know, my last hunk of it, big hunk of it. <laughs> several hundred pages and I just sat at home and wept for like five days. I walked around in my underpants and I didn't see anybody but the guy who delivered curry and just wept and watched Oprah and I just didn't know what to do. And I finally called Don Delillo, whom I'm lucky enough to know, and I said And I was sobby. I was weepy. I was like, you know, snubbing and wiping my nose on the back of my hand. And he said, what's the matter with you? I said, I've written a really bad book. It's terrible. You can't believe how bad it is. And he said kind of the perfect thing. He said, well, who doesn't? And I thought, this is arguably, you know, the greatest English language novelist alive. And he's saying, well, of course, we all write bad books. And it was just, I was able to exhale for the first time in seven years. So, mm. Mary, do you think Catholic women are more creative than the others? Did you say Catholics? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we just. I, can, I, I can don't think Catholics are more creative. Catholic. I just think we feel worse about it than other people. <laughs> <laughs> We're just more ashamed.
1: Danielle, you're a fellow Catholic, am I right? Are we, or, are, yeah. is, do we
3: have a troika of Catholics here? That's kind of terrifying. Call the Pope. No. How would you categorize yourself, Linda? Are you like
2: recovered new age?
1: I'm recovered new age. I spent a lot of time in church as a kid by my own request. I made my parents drive me to Sunday school. And I went to a Catholic church with a boyfriend in high school. I loved it. It was hard to sit still that long, but I loved it.
3: How about you? It's only 45 minutes. I mean, it's the Baptist will kill (laughs) you. I mean, those are some long (laughs) prayers. Those are long (laughs) prayers. Uh, But, Danielle, you went through the whole thing, didn't you? Uh, I
2: went through the whole thing. My first detention I ever got in high school was for painting my nails during church.
3: That's that's um, the spirit. That's what Jesus would have done. That's what (laughs) Jesus would have done. I actually
2: just wrote about today. I put a post out about I think Jesus would have been the ultimate gentleman on Facebook because I really took some swings at all the distasteful liberties that are being taken online by coaches calling people out publicly and anyway... That's a sidetrack. Uh, I've come out on the other side of Catholicism, which is a very, um, a deeper than ever adoration, total love and devotion for what I would call the cosmic Christ. And that has sparked an incredible interest now, like a fervor for knowing everything I can know about Mary Magdalene.
3: Oh, me too. Uh, Obsessed. Oh, yeah. that's so great. Yeah. Anybody with okay. Mary is a first name. I'm in favor. Right? Well, actually, yeah, yeah. yeah. My dog's okay, name I is want... Mary. Oh, that's
2: also Mary. Mary M-E-R-R-Y. Um M-E-R-R-Y. <laughs> I want to talk about memoir. First of all, Mary, do you pronounce it memoir or memoir?
3: Oh, no, I would never do a French pronunciation. I'd feel like a <laughs> kid. Okay. I'd feel okay. like a pretentious dick. Yeah, no, it's memoir.
2: <laughs> this is America, um, damn it. You have a 10-point list about gauging one's readiness for going into memoir. I love that you mentioned that if someone's young, they might want to wait. We are, quote, soft as clay before 35. But I want to talk to you about tough skin and, you know, writing that affects a group of people, writing about a divorce when you're in it, but knowing that you're going to get some wrath, some fallout or some pushback from certain groups of people or from your mother or from your priest. So can you talk to us, describe your own tough skin And what hurts, if anything, still hurts you in terms of reviews, fallout,
3: pushback? I've got to say I've never really had any pushback. I've been very lucky. I mean, but I mostly write out of love. I mean, anybody who's read my books knows that I mostly write about people I really love. You know, if you want revenge, you know, buy a firearm or, you know, hire a lawyer or, you know, I just, I don't think literature is the place to settle a score. It's why I suggest people not write about their divorces when they're in them, maybe. I've never really read a good book that had a divorce in it. I think a divorce passage, you know, including my own, by the way. I don't think I had much success with that. So I notify everybody in advance. I say, look, mom, remember when you tried to kill me with a butcher knife, I'm going to write about that. (laughs) Or shoot daddy (laughs) with a fire arrow. Yeah, exactly. Remember when that happened? And I give people a chance to say how they feel about it. And surprisingly, nobody ever says, oh, no, oh, please, oh, don't. And then when I'm done writing, I don't show anybody pages while I'm working. And when I'm completely done, I send it to people. And if I think it's going to be painful, as in the case of my mother, I try to be with them You know, not right in the room with them, but maybe in the same town or the same house or, you know, kind of be there to talk to them about it because that's the primary relationship, you know. But in my experience, I've never really had, other than a minor anecdote over, you know, 25 years, I've never had anything changed. Never. I mean, strange. A date here and there, you know, spelling of somebody's name. So I don't know why that is. I'm sure my memory is extremely flawed. It's probably the generosity of the people I care about. Mm-hmm. I think so, I love
1: wins. Yeah, love wins for sure. So at Syracuse University, in your graduate program, you get hundreds, sometimes thousands of applications for 12 spots. When you look at that as a total, are they mostly all good writers? And what makes someone stand out as a student that you want to teach?
3: Well, they're mostly all good writers. I mean, I think at the peak, which uh, George Saunders teaches here, so kind of the peak of his fame a couple of years ago, we got almost 1,200 applications for 12 positions. So that's wow. just crazy. Wow. They all come knowing how to write. I mean, everybody. I mean, when you get down, you know, you can get rid of, you know, the first 1,150. But, you know, everybody else is pretty adroit just in terms of making sentences and what a paragraph is. And oddly, none of us, we don't have a kind of Syracuse way of writing. I mean, I'm not a particularly experimental writer. Michael Burkhart is extremely experimental. Dana Spiotta, extremely experimental, you know. So it's not like we have a certain type of writing we favor. It's really just, I don't know. its We admit them not looking at their academic credentials. So what's fun is to you know, reject a Yale summa in favor of like a Barnum & Bailey clown, which actually happened, or a gay ex-Marine. I mean, those are both people who beat out Ivy Leaguers. Nice. So um, actual students of ours. So it's whoever is the best pages. Mm-hmm.
1: Mary,
2: do you have a prayer that you say before you write?
3: Oh, yeah, I have a lot of them. I mean, oh. I do a sort of centering prayer exercise before I write, which is, you know, 15 to 30 minutes of just following my breath. And I get on my knees a lot in the middle of the day and just say, you know, help me. It's an old Hemingway line, you know, help me say the next true thing. Or I hit my knees and I say a lot of swear words and shoot the finger at the light bulb and say, you know, why do you want me to do this if it's this damned hard? So, I sort of figure even if I'm ranting and raving at God, at least we're having a conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm, I love that. So, when you were 10 years
1: old, you wrote in your journal, I will write one half poetry and one half autobiography. Do you remember feeling that statement? Did you feel that you would be a writer or was this a purely intellectual download?
3: Oh, no. From the time I was five, if you asked me what I was going to be, I would have said a poet. So, it's just a kind of curse for some children, and it ruins a family. I'm convinced to have a writer in it. Do you think so? Oh, I don't know. I mean, who wants one of us? You know, I mean, we're not really known for our dispositions, let's face it. So, I don't know. I, I don't even remember what autobiography I read. It must have been Helen Keller, is one of the first memoirs I read. I think there was something about. I was a sad little weirdo girl. I was just a little oddball. And something about somebody trying to make sense of their life and that single voice kind of crying out of the middle of the wilderness of their very unique experience, I just made me feel less lonely. Made me feel like, you know, I wasn't the only weird one with this Mm -hmm. big interior life. So it just cheered me up. So I don't know what possessed me. To think that way. But I read memoirs very passionately, and I started teaching memoir in 1985 before it was public literary radar. So I've always loved it. How about you guys? Have you all always loved it? or Oh, God, yes. Yeah.
1: Always, from the time I was little. My dad was a musician, and we had a small library in our house, and I read, like, interviews with Bach and Brahms and Beethoven and Tchaikovsky, and wow. the interviews were very autobiographical. They were written very much like my first book. I think that's probably why I wrote my first book the way I did it. it. was a book of interviews, very similar in style. But some of these interviews were over 100 years old, but they were so autobiographical, and I just thought it was the neatest thing I'd ever seen in my life.
3: That's so cool.
1: How about you, Dee? Well, you know,
2: only child, Catholic school, (laughs) small rural community. Like, I had no choice. (laughs) I had to, I had to, I had to write. Yeah. Now, I want to talk about arriving. So, you know, when I got my first fancy literary agent, I thought, I arrived. Uh, and then you realize, not really, you know. And then my most recent moment of feeling that I've arrived is last week. So I make a lot of things. I have, like, you know, decks and apps and things that need to get shipped. And I now have my very own packing tape. It's got my logo on it. What? domain oh, name. I name. It. Yeah. it. So, so funny. <laughs> funny. And I thought... <laughs> I've arrived. When you get your own packing tape, you for sure. Shit. When was one of your first? You can actually you can answer. This, you can go in two directions. Your very first, or one of your most recent. I've arrived. I've pulled it off. Kind of moments.
3: Oh my goodness! I never feel like I've arrived. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I never feel like mm-hmm. I've arrived. I mean, I guess being able to call Don DeLillo—it's for me—it's being able to have conversations with people I admire. Yeah, meeting Ralph Ellison, somebody like that. Meeting Maya Angelou. Meeting Maxine Hong Kingston, or you know, just. Meeting writers I admire. I mean that, the big luxury of what I do is that I've been able to meet people who are having a conversation I've aspired to have since I was five years old. So yeah. I always feel like I've got my little league slugger and I'm going into Yankee Stadium. I never <laughs> feel like I've arrived. Never feels right.
1: Mm. That says a lot for somebody who is seen as the person who reignited the memoir movement. I mean, you did that with the Liars Club. So for you to feel like you're not in the big leagues is a little humorous.
3: Well, you have to remember that when the Liars Club came out, you know, I was a single mom who was working full time. And so I wasn't swanning around a lot of literary parties. You know, I was moving a refrigerator by myself. You know, I was trying to figure out how to for the bow to his baseline and how to get the, you know, basketball hoop to the right height. You know, I I was in the trenches. So I only moved to New York maybe 10 years after that. But even then, I don't spend a lot of time in sort of literary circles. You know, I'm a Catholic. What can I say?
1: Yeah, exactly. All right, switching gears. Best mistake, career or otherwise?
3: Best mistake? All my mistakes seem like life and death, so they, none of them seem that good. I loved checking into a mental institution. I mean, I loved my nervous breakthrough. I, I spent my whole life thinking I was crazy and being afraid I would go so crazy. And then when I arrived in the mental Marriott, I realized, one, I just wasn't that crazy. I was very sad. But that's a different thing than being stark, staring, mad. Uh, you know, that's not rip your shirt off and run down the street crazy. But it was a place I sort of surrendered and really started praying and really started looking for spiritual solutions to my problems. You know, I tried intellectual, chemical, pharmacological, you know, penis related solutions. I, you know, I tried to solve my misery a million different ways. And I thought, what if I try this spiritual stuff? So I guess in some ways that bottom, quote unquote, you know, helped me turn my life around in a way that's been useful.
1: I love those scenes in Lit when your child comes to visit you at the mental Marriott and really touching stuff, really, really touching stuff.
2: You know, lots of things in your life to create the sadness. But do you think that you were born with, that you incarnated with your own kind of sadness? Did you bring it in with you?
3: I'm no Richard Simmons. I mean, yeah, I, I don't. I, I
1: <laughs> you, don't up, you don't just I, spontaneously start jumping around.
3: Well, it's funny, I do that more now. I'm more. You're more prone to find me singing into my hairbrush in my apartment than doing other things than at any time in my life. But I think I was just a glum bunny. I do. I, you know, I found a get well card I wrote to my grandmother when I was like four years old, and it describes a guy being hit by a car and then draws the corpse under the car. I mean.
0: Who does that at
3: like four or five years old? I mean, it's like, right? What makes that kind of psyche? I don't know. I was just a morbid child, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just how or or a truth teller. Yeah, either that or that's right. Either or. But Mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody said, "Did you ever run for cheerleader?" I was like, "Yeah, but I'm not that cheerful." (laughs) You know. (laughs) It's not my nature, really, to be cheerful. But, you know, there are worse things. I mean, most of the people I associate with are the same way. I'm not going to be the prom queen.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so beyond prayer and drinking, which you don't do anymore, thankfully, what is your creative secret weapon? Something you use perhaps on a deadline or when you're feeling stuck? Anything?
3: Just work. Just hours and hours and hours. I can outwork people who are naturally more talented, I think. But that's really it. Editing, that's it. Yeah. I think I'm a pretty good editor. When I have a flamethrower on my butt, I can write for a long time, for a lot of hours. So I kind of go from place to place and I have a walking desk. I'll work at the walking desk for a few hours and then I'll go nice. to my other desk and then I'll go to the table and then I'll get in bed and work my laptop and then I go to the coffee shop and then I come back and go to the walking <laughs> desk. And then it's like 14 hours later and I sort of kid myself that I'm starting over every time. So, <laughs>
2: Can you talk about what you call the scary blankness? You talk about you need to have the self-discipline to work in the quote unquote scary blankness for some period of time. Uh, it takes you three to five weeks. Sometimes you can be in there for a year. But what's happening in that scary blankness? Are you on the walking desk and in the cafe? Are you just not writing at all and circling the park? Are you like in research? No, I,
3: I'm usually, I give myself a page and an hour deadline when I'm really stuck. I'll say you have to do, say, Two pages a day, or two and a half pages a day, or five hours, whichever comes first. You know, if you're writing badly, two pages is a lot of pages, can take you a long time. Uh (laughs) And sometimes you come in and you are actually cutting, you know, the ten pages, you're doing negative ten pages. So, yeah, when I pick up and put down other books and I read other things that I think. Or better examples or things that inspire me, things that I try to write like, you know, books I admire. Um, do you reward but, yourself?
2: Like if you get those two pages done, are you like, ah, I hang out on Pinterest, I'll go to a movie, I'll have some chips.
1: <laughs>
3: I have chips anyway. I mean I'm just gonna I'm gonna have those chips. Um. I'm gonna have those chips. I reward myself whether I do anything good or not. I just that's right. just how I roll. Hey, I'm Barry, just a chippier.
1: Me too. Mary, what's your creative rhythm, your daily schedule? Does it differ or is it usually the same?
3: It's never the same. I mean, now that I do all this other stuff, when I'm teaching, I only work on poems and then only on days I don't teach. And when I'm not teaching, well, it depends. I just like I've been working on this TV show for a couple of years. So I fly to L.A. a lot and talk to other people that do that. And I have meetings and I go places and lecture. So. It's really, everything's kind of wedged into everything else. I don't have a typical day anymore. I swan around more. I guess I spend a lot more time on airplanes. Okay, let's do our intermission.
2: Dr. intermission, multiple choice questions. All right, Mary, dark chocolate or milk chocolate? Dark chocolate. Digital calendar or paper? Uh, Both. Both, okay. Lord's Prayer or the
3: Hail Mary? Uh, Lord's (laughs) Prayer. (laughs) But also, that's not my favorite. But I also pray the rosary, which has more Hail Marys than our fathers, technically. It does. In terms of just sheer number, right? Yeah. What's your favorite prayer? It depends. I mean, I do something called the examine of conscience every night where you kind of replay your day and look for evidence of God in the day. So in some ways that because it's where I'm really seeking God in the unexpected places in my day. But I also, when I'm really in a bind, I'll pray the Litany of the Saints, which is, I don't know, maybe a 45-minute event, and it's a good way of getting me out of my head if I'm worried about something.
2: Mm, you're in town. Silver or gold? Both.
3: Okay, so final, you final multiple
2: choice. Uh, okay. For me, gold, all gold. I'm about the vibration of gold. Gold works into my prayers. Gold is my spiritual
3: blend. Mm. I like it. Gold is your spirit animal.
1: Yeah. I like them both. I like them both. I have a silver um, chain around my neck right now with a gold Ganesh that I got last month and silver earrings with... yeah, I'm all over the place. All right. So there you go. <laughs> wait, wait. I
2: have one more multiple choice question. Yes. Okay. Mary, when you're on iTunes, do you buy the whole album or do you just get a oh, yeah. couple of the choice track?
1: <laughs> no, I buy the whole album. Yeah. Oh, good it. for you, Mama. Good for you. All right. So you have said that lit is about getting drunk and getting sober, about what you like to call your nervous breakthrough. It's about leaving home to find home. So as someone who teaches book proposal writing, I hear those lines, and I think, ding, 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 those are great lines for the overview or the marketing section of a book proposal. Did you write a book proposal for lit or for the art of memoir? And if so, did you put lines like those in your proposal?
3: Yes. The book proposal I wrote for Liars Club included all three books.
1: Whoa. Uh, You mean like a spinoff?
3: Well, I just didn't finish the whole, what I promised to do in my whole proposal. So I sort of dismantled that
1: oh. and recycled
3: parts of it when I wrote. For, but I also changed sort of how I was writing and what I was writing about. When uh-huh. I became Catholic, I mean, I did all kinds of weird stuff. So, <laughs> But yes, yes. Nice. Yes. Okay,
1: so, you know, we, Danielle and I have friends that say to us, Oh, I don't write proposals anymore. I don't need proposals anymore. And then we have some of those same people come back to us and say, Holy Mother of God, I wish I had written a proposal. I would have had more ready for marketing, which I'm now doing, or I would have gotten more money. So, do you still, in this part of your career, for your next book, will you write a proposal?
3: I always write a proposal.
1: Nice.
3: Yeah, I write, yeah, because you get more money. I mean, why yeah. wouldn't you do something that would increase your income?
1: Now, I'm a for big people, fan of
3: shoes. Income? <laughs>
1: for people yeah, who I'm are, a big who
3: fan are, of income.
1: For people who are just learning about book proposals for the first time, I'd love to hear your take on why you do believe you get more money when you write a proposal versus handing in an entire manuscript or just winging it with a lot No, I mean,
3: fin- I think that's, you know, I'd get even more money if I handed the manuscript in, usually, I think. Maybe not. Uh, I don't know. I don't know, it's just what I've always done, I wouldn't think to do otherwise. Yeah, yeah. You know, it just gives me a week to two weeks or whatever to think about the book and what I'm doing and what I want to do and what's going to be in it and map it out. And I
1: I think you do have the luxury, people would read your whole manuscript because you're a known commodity, but for somebody, you know, our listeners who haven't become famous already as authors, right, the proposal is
3: invaluable. Well, I'll tell them a secret. I'll tell them the real secret to getting the big money. Go. <laughs> We're listening. Learn how to write. <laughs> if you write the best book you can write, you'll sell it. Right. And if it's not that good, then write it again. I mean, when people ask me the secret, you know, I spent 20 years getting ready to write The Liar's Club, and I wrote it a bunch of different ways, and I rewrote it, and I spent nine months on the first chapter. So I think if you spend a lot of time on, you know, every piece of what you're doing, you'll make it better, you know, not to expect to do it in two weeks or a month or whatever.
2: Mm -hmm. Mary, what about platform? I mean, I think, you know, you can write a really moving and impeccable book. Then for sure, you're going to have to have a lot of patience to hustle that and get a deal, because not everybody's going
3: to see that. That's not true. That's not true. Publishers don't read, but agents read. Yep. If you turn Mm -hmm. in a book like Vladimir Nabokov's Speak Memory, Mm -hmm. if you turn in a book like To Kill a Mockingbird, if you turn in a book like that, trust me, they'll notice. They'll know from the first page, from the first sentence, (laughs) who they're dealing with. Do you think that's enough? I mean,
2: these are the days of platforms. I mean, how many, I've I've lost track of how many times I've heard a publisher say, look, you know, unless you've got like 50,000 followers on Facebook, we can't even.
3: Oh, then you're dealing with stupid publishers. You (laughs) You ought to deal with better publishers because if the book is well written, I didn't have a platform when I sold Liars Club. I didn't have any followers. I think if I turned it in today, if I turned in the first three chapters, I'd still be able to, Get somebody to publish it. So I think if it's not selling, rewrite it and make it better. I, I, that's, you know, Don DeLillo doesn't have a platform. When you were saying platform, I didn't even know what that meant. Oh. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I didn't even know what that is. So I still think the time honored way to publish a book is to learn how to write. And agents read, editors and publishers read. don't read, but agents read. If you send a manuscript that's a serious, considered manuscript and it's well written you'll get attention you know so yeah I mean there are a lot of good enough books and there are a lot of crummy books that get published but if you write a great book a really 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 good book you're going to get it read it's going to find its audience I believe that yeah
1: Yeah. So let's talk money and writing. Money and writing. So you say that no one really talks about it, but professional writers write for money. Can you give us some context for what you mean by that and why writers don't talk more about money?
3: It's funny. A former student of mine, Keith Gesson, had an essay in a magazine he founded called M Plus One called Money that I think is a very good essay about, like, what it costs and what you can make and journalism and teaching and doing various things. And I think it's a wonderful essay for people starting out to read. I mean, I would never have written anything if I didn't get paid for it. I mean, other than my poems and my essays. You know, the memoirs I've written, I've written for money. I mean, this book, Art of Memoir, I wrote because somebody called my agent and said, we'll give her this much money to write this book. And my agent called me and said, guess what? Guess how much they want to give us? And I said, I don't to feel like doing it. I want to finish a book of poems. And I've been working on a television show, and she told me the number. And I said, great, when do we start? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I can be bought. It's proven. I can be bought. Oh, I you love know, it. I've been, I grew up poor. I had a lot of crummy jobs. And if somebody's dumb enough to give me money to try to write a book, I'm dumb enough to take it. <laughs> mm. What's that
2: pivotal advice that you got along the way? You know, that one thing, an agent or a good friend or anybody just said, Mary, do this or don't do this, and then it changed your course. Did you get any of that?
3: I think the thing about focusing on the writing, and if you focus on the writing, I mean, that's your job. Your job is writing. Marketing, you have to do, but... You know, if you write well enough, you don't have to do it, mm-hmm. you know. If you write well enough, you don't have to do it. I mean, Cheryl Stray didn't have any trouble selling Wild. I mean, she just didn't. You know, Didn't she sell terrific- the
1: film rights before she, uh, let's see, the film was already in the works before the book ever came out.
3: That's not true.
1: Oh, really? That's what I was told. No,
3: uh-uh. No, I don't okay. think so. Okay. I could be wrong. I could be wrong about this. but Well, we're interviewing
1: but, uh, her next year, so we'll just ask we'll her. Well, ask
3: her. Ask her. She'll tell you the truth. Yeah. She yeah. won't muck about.
1: So, Mary, I love, love, love <laughs> how you were joking with Brooke Warner about how the genre of memoir is a trashy, ghetto-assed, primitive form because... Anyone who has ever lived can write one, <laughs> but you know that was that, what was funny about that is I've just spent years writing one. I'm just finishing it now, and I know how bloody oh, fucking hard it is.
3: <laughs> So Thank, hard.
1: You. Thank you. it's so hard. That's a nightmare.
3: And what were you thinking? I don't know. So and I kept hard. saying that
1: to my mentor. My mentor is Betsy Rapaport, who has done you know Martha Beck's was the one who told Martha Beck to write Expecting Adam how many years ago, and I say right. to her, I'm like Betsy, what the fuck am I doing? Why did I even attempt this? And she laughs and she says, because you're funny as hell and you're going to help a ton of people. But there
3: you go. The
1: idea of taking your your life or a piece of your life and trying to make it riveting or page turning for 300 plus pages, even for somebody who has high self-confidence, which most of us overthinking writers do
3: not possess. That is a stretch, is it not? (laughs) Well, it depends on how much time you spend in your head. (laughs) Um, I think it's less about the exterior whammies, you know, of your life than about your psychological, complexity and your own inner struggle and what's going on in the world so and I think the most privileged person who will hear this suffers the torments of the damned I think the richest person with the best skin and the nicest butt you know and whose kids are all perfect and whatever the best relationship the best apartment you know has had her heart broken a thousand times so that she didn't felt like she couldn't get out of bed And I think it depends on the size of your inner life and self-awareness. And as you know, having just come through your own slog, you know, kind of willingness to tell the truth.
1: Yeah, yeah.
3: The size of
2: your inner life. Okay, Mary, final question. What's the song for you that you still have to sing? So, you know, you'd really, ideally, you would get this out and into the world
3: before you die. Oh, I have no idea. I mean, I don't know. I am working on a record, but I did one record with a guy named Rodney Crowell that a bunch of interesting people did, and Mm -hmm. we're working on another record. So when you said song, I was confused. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. You mean that metaphorically? I don't know. I've got no idea. I'm just pottering along. I'd like to finish this book of poems. Oh, Mary.
1: Okay, so in wrapping up, I just want to say that in the art of memoir, that part where you're talking about that if a memoir is done right, it's essentially knocking yourself out with your own fist. and you yeah, right. It, you call it a major league shit-eating contest with lots Isn't of it? suffering, which I totally, totally, totally agree with. And you know, Dee and I just want to thank you so much for the suffering you've thank taken you on to share your hilarious humanity. We just love you so much.
3: Thank you, guys. Well, tell Miss Cheryl mm. Stray to give her big smooches from me and thank mm. y'all for having me. Uh, give him uh, hell, lady. Uh, right. <laughs> yes, Emoji Mind drop. Emoji prayer hands. Mind drop. Okay.
2: <laughs> Bye, lady. Love, love, love. Bye. Bye. All right. And in wrapping up, word is out that if you review this podcast on iTunes, then it's really great karma and great things happen for everybody. Like I said in the interview, we just started this like for fun and then it took off. And now it's like this sweet, divine, turn into a calling. So thank you everybody for listening and go be creative and get your work into the world. Thank you.
1: To hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on.